together to worship you, to know you better, to study your word, to fellowship, and to share our love with one another. It's such a blessing, Lord, to be here. We praise you for our health. We ask you, Lord, to be with those today who aren't healthy enough to be here, to cover them and comfort them and let them know we love them and hope they'll be back. Lord, we pray for Catherine now and ask you just to speak through her in a special way. Lord, use her mindedly as she teaches us your word. I pray, Lord, that we would get a glimpse of who you are so that we will love you more and serve you better. Thank you, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, you will open up to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to finish Genesis 4 and then, Lord willing... We're going to also finish chapter 5. Okay, Genesis chapter 4. For Adam and Eve, their only glimmer of hope after the death of their righteous son, Abel, and the departure of, uh, from God, the departure from God of their firstborn son, Cain, their only hope was in God's Genesis 3.15 promise of a coming Redeemer. Because Abel was dead, there would obviously be no righteous seed that would be brought forth from him through whom the Redeemer could come. And furthermore, even a righteous descendant of Cain could not qualify to uh, carry on the Messianic line. And so things would have appeared very hopeless without faith in God's faithfulness. God is the one who had promised a deliverer, right? the seed of the woman. And therefore, in order to keep that promise, to fulfill his plan, it became necessary for God to preserve a godly remnant. And he would keep his promise because he is a promise-keeping God. He would keep his promise by providing another son who was sovereignly appointed to head up the messianic line of the seed of the woman. Now, this does not mean that Adam and Eve did not have other sons who were godly, other sons or daughters. It was simply that God had not appointed or set in place the son who was to head up the godly line. Adam and Eve may have had other righteous sons, you know, between the death of Abel and the birth of Seth, but none of those sons was sovereignly chosen by God to carry on the line through which the Messiah, Christ, would come. And that's what we call, therefore, the messianic line, the godly line that began with Adam, was going to go through Abel, but then he was killed, and so God had to replace him with another son. Now, in this lesson, we're going to learn that, of course, God did replace Abel. He kept his promise to Adam and Eve by giving them another son who would re-begin the godly seed of the woman through which eventually the Messiah, the Redeemer, would be born. And that son's name was, you all say it, Seth. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, all the way through the end of chapter 5, we are going to see what the scripture has to teach us about Seth and the godly line of his descendants which preceded the flood. These are all antediluvian men who we will be looking at. They preceded the flood. Now the second half of our two-part study on the Cainites and the Sethites is... Uh, entitled, 
part two of the Cainites and the Sethites. And since last week we looked at the Cainites, guess what we're going to look at today? Sethites. Very good. And as we do that, we're going to look at three main subdivisions. We'll look at, first of all, a godly replacement, a godly revival, and then a godly record. So let's begin by looking at a godly replacement in verse 25 of chapter 4, where the word of God says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Here we find that Moses takes us once again back to Adam. Just as we saw back in Genesis 4.1, prior to the birth of Cain, we are told again that Adam knew his wife. And that's talking about a physical union. And the consequence was that she bare a son. And somehow, Eve knew that this infant was the son through whom the promised seed of this, or the Savior would come. And we know this because of the fact that she named him Seth. The name Seth means appointed one, or substitute, or the one set in place of. Knowing the end from the beginning, as of course God does, God knew it was no surprise to him that Abel was murdered. He knew Abel would die at the hands of his rebellious brother, and therefore in the counsel of his own will in eternity past, he had already planned for the foundation of the world, he had already planned to send an appointed substitute for murdered Abel. So it was a time of new beginnings. With Seth began the messianic line, which would climax in the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. A godly replacement for Abel had been born. And I think, again, somehow or another, this must demonstrate the importance of the second birth right? This is the second birth, Seth, replacing Abel. And it was also a time of new beginnings in that with Seth and his son, Enos, who we'll look at in a minute, there came a godly revival. So not only a godly replacement, but a godly revival. This is the very first revival in all the history of mankind. And it is recorded for us in the very last verse of Genesis chapter 4. So let's look at a godly revival. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. You might want to underline that and put next to the, in your margin, if you write on your Bible, which I do, um, you might put first revival. As Enoch, remember Enoch, who was the son of Cain? As Enoch was busy populating the ungodly city of the Cainites, remember that city that Cain started to build and named after his son? I just have to tell you this. I just thought of this. This was so funny. My daughter called me last night. My youngest daughter, she's the one who I had promised God when she went off to kindergarten I would do something for the Lord. And the day she went off to kindergarten, I called Pastor Bob Yandel here at Grace Chapel and said, you know, I want to serve the Lord. He said, start a ladies Bible study. And so now 14 years later, here we are. And my daughter is now that little one who went off that day to kindergarten is now in college up at the Word of Life Bible Institute in Upper State, New York. But she called me last night and this past week, they've have 
have had Dr. John Whitcomb teaching them on the book of Genesis. I mean, the master himself, the man who wrote the Genesis flood. But he was their teacher on Genesis, and uh, she was going to get me. She was going to get me. So she'd been studying. They have a big exam today on Genesis. And so she said, Mom, I just know you're not going to know this. What was the first city ever, ever built? And I said, Enoch. And she went, ah! It just made her so mad. And then she said, she said, where did Cain and his wife go to live? I said, Nod. And she said, you know, you're smarter than I thought. <laughs> I did not tell her that that's what I've been studying all the <laughs> Oh, but anyway, as Enoch, with the help of his father, Cain, was busy populating that ungodly city um, of the Cainites, Enos, now the son of Seth, who God divinely chose to carry on the Messianic line, he was busy probably with both his father, Seth, and with his grandfather, Adam, preparing a population for heaven. Isn't that neat? One was, you know, populating an earthly city, and here these guys are busy populating um, heaven by having a spiritual reawakening or a revival. Enos was born, it tells us, when Seth was 105 years old. So how old would Adam be? 235 at this time. Still a young man. (laughs) And it tells us that Seth named him. This is interesting. Um, I noticed this. Sometimes it's the mother who named the child, as in the case when Eve named Seth. And sometimes it was the father who named the child, as in this case, it tells us that Seth is the one who named Enos. So that just goes to tell us that, you know, both mother and father have the privilege and the right to name their children. Enos means frail, weak man, or frail, weak mortal. And this might tell us that by the time of the birth of Enos, Seth, his father, had come to realize the frailty and the weakness of human nature. You know, we can be sure that he had heard about the tragic incident which had occurred between his two older brothers, Cain and Abel. And he was absolutely correct, therefore, in his assessment of the condition of mortal man. Man was formed from the dust, and to the dust he would eventually return. Man is indeed very frail and very weak. And it is good when man realizes this truth about himself, along with the fact of his own human depravity, which means his own sinful hopelessness. It's good when man realizes this, because this is what causes him to understand his need for God and to call upon God to save him from his hopeless, frail, weak humanity and uh, mortality. Well, not only did Seth rightly understand man's utter total need to rely on God for his salvation, but so did his son Enos, which tells us that Seth was a good father. And uh, Genesis 4.26 tells us that it was during the lifetime of Enos that men began to call on the name of the Lord. So this was the first recorded revival in the scripture. Men in Seth's line began to call on God in acknowledgement of their dependence on him. And if you think about this, only two verses before this, 
we were reading about Lamech's boastful, bragging song of the sword, where he was, you know, the very opposite. What was he doing? He was bragging about his self-sufficiency and his independence of God. And now the Lord, the Holy Spirit, two verses later, is telling us about how men are casting themselves, you know, at, at God's feet for begging for his mercy. Like Seth, Enos and the others in the family line of Seth realized that sin was not just some minor flaw in their human nature, but it was fatal both for themselves and for their world. It was eternally fatal. Unless, uh, of course, God intervened on their behalf. And so, therefore, they threw themselves on his mercy and on his grace, and they called upon his name for both their physical and their spiritual salvation. And what do you think was the result of them calling upon the name of the Lord? They were saved, right? They were born again. Doesn't it tell us, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. That's all you need to do is understand your own weakness and your own hopelessness, your own sinful nature, and call upon the name of the Lord to save you. And it's that simple. He will save you. Perhaps the ungodly descendants of Cain, the Cainites, who were gathered together there in the land of Nod in their city of Enoch, prompted the godly descendants of Adam uh, to gather together not in a city, but in a setting for worship and prayer. Martin Luther, who was the great Protestant reformer, he said that this is basically the first church that we have in the scripture. Perhaps under the direction of Enos, and of course his father and his grandfather, they gathered to pray together for their unsaved relatives, all those Canaanites. And perhaps, too, they worshiped God together rather than individually at their um, own private altars. A picture of that. And maybe they gathered at Adam's altar, which he may very well, we speculated about this, maybe he built that altar at the very entrance to the Garden of Eden, where he had once met with God face to face. Whatever the situation might have been, it was a good one. And God was pleased because he made certain that Moses mentioned this first revival in the eternal word of God there in Genesis 4.26. So while the Canaanites were busy boasting and bragging about all of their cultural advancements and of their self-sufficiency, the Sethites were busy calling upon the name of their Lord for his gracious salvation. And that's just a beautiful contrast that we have there in those last few verses of chapter 4. So let's move now to chapter 5 and look at a godly record. And um, let me see if I can put my outline back up here so you can see. No, I don't even have that on there. Under the godly record, we're going to look at um, the antediluvian patriarchs, and then we're going to look at the antediluvian prophets. Okay, so that's where we're going on our outline. Many people think, and probably most of you are included in this, that the um, genealogies in the Bible are very dull <laughs> and very boring portions of the Scripture. And so what do most people do when they get to them as they're reading the Bible? You know, they look at them, oh, yeah, I can't pronounce any of those. Mm -hmm, 
turn the page because <laughs> it looks pretty boring. And yet, what does the scripture itself tell us about the scripture? Doesn't it say that all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness and those sort of things, so that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It tells us all scripture, and does that include genealogies? It must, yes. <laughs> so this means that even genealogies are profitable. I hope you learned that a little bit last week. We're going to learn it more this week. Genesis chapter 5 contains the list of Adam's descendants through Seth down to Noah. And his three sons, Noah's three sons. The men listed here in this chapter, I hope you'll come to really appreciate and love. These are mighty men of faith in an increasingly wicked day. And as such, they teach us a lot that we should look at, you know, because they're examples for us. Again, Martin Luther said uh, he was very impressed. He was greatly impressed with these men. And so he said this. He called them the antediluvian heroes of our faith. This is a quote from him. Quote, This is the greatest glory of the primitive world, that it had so many good, wise, and holy men at the same time. Remember now, these guys lived long years, so many of them overlapped in their, in, while they were on earth. That's why he says lived at the same time. We must not think that these are ordinary names of plain people, but next to Christ and John the Baptist, they were the most outstanding heroes this world has ever produced. And on the last day, we shall behold and admire their grandeur. Likewise, we shall also see their deeds, for then it will be made manifest what Adam, Seth, Methuselah, and the others did, what they endured from the old serpent how they comforted and maintained themselves by means of the hope of the seed against the outrages of the world or of the Canaanites, how they experienced various kinds of treachery, how much envy, hatred, and contempt they endured on account of the glory of the blessed seed who would be born from their descendants. End of quote. It's interesting to find here in Genesis 5 that there are uh, 10 generations listed from Adam to Noah. As just we'll also find when we get to Genesis chapter 11, there are 10 generations from Shem, who was the son of Noah, who would carry on the Messianic line. There are 10 generations from Shem to Abraham. Interesting fact, isn't it? Also, it's important to point out a contrast which the writer gives to us here in Genesis 5 between verses 1 and 3. So let's look at those three verses for a minute. Genesis 5, verses 1 to 3. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. You know where it, the only other place where it says the book of the generations of is in Matthew 1, 1 where it speaks out about the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. See, here we have the all the redeemed of the first Adam, and in the first book of the New Testament, we have all the redeemed of the second Adam. Who said the Bible wasn't written by one author and that it doesn't have a beautiful unity? If they said that, they're wrong. All right, let me start again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In, that, in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Remember, God made Adam 
in his own likeness, in his own image. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. You know, Eve had three names. She was not only called woman and named Eve by her husband, but she was also known as Adam. You know, they were both together known as Adam. What does Adam mean in Hebrew? Man. So she really had three names. And it says in verse 3, And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son, oh, look at this, in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. We have a contrast here between verses 1 and 3. In Genesis 5, 1, we are reminded that Adam was created in the likeness and image of God. And that takes us back to Genesis 1.26, where God counseled together with himself within the triune Godhead, and he said, let us make man in our image, right, after our likeness. However, now in verse 3, Genesis 5, we're told that Seth was begotten in the likeness of Adam after his image. You see, between the time of the creation of Adam and the birth of Seth, there had been a tremendous change, hadn't there? What had happened? The fall. Adam had sinned. And as a result, all of his children were going to be born with the sin nature. And this is called by theologians the Adamic sin nature. And this is why the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, What? Ye must be born again. We've all been born the first time in the likeness and in the image of fallen Adam. And so we are all born with the Adamic sin nature. We're all born in sin. So we're born the first time all wrong, aren't we? We're born uh, really spiritually dead because we're born separated from God. And so in order to correct that, that wrong, dead situation, we must be born again so that we're born right And we're born alive the second time. Now, although it was through the godly line of the Sethites mentioned in chapter 5 here that the Messianic line would continue, yet this does not mean that all the Sethites who were born were born godly. Of course not. That each and every one of them, beginning with Seth himself, was born with this Adamic sin nature. The Sethites were just as much members of the fallen human race of humanity as the Cainites. The difference is that those mentioned to us here in Genesis chapter 5 each called upon the name of the Lord for their salvation. And in doing so, they were born again because they believed in God and they believed in his promise, his Genesis 3.15 promise of a coming Savior. Apparently, during Enos's life, many others, besides those that we will read about here in Genesis 5, many others were also saved. Many others also called upon the name of the Lord, not just the the ten men that we're going to read about. So through the ten antediluvian patriarchs and prophets presented for us in Genesis 5, we are going to find out three things. First of all, the Lord God was preserving the sovereignly chosen line of the seed of the woman. He was preserving the messianic line through which his son would eventually be born. Secondly, he was seeing to it that his command to be fruitful and multiply was was being fulfilled. 
that it was actually uh, taking place. And third, he was demonstrating the fulfillment of his words to Adam when he had warned him back in the garden that if he, had, if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Eight times in this record, in chapter 5, eight times, we find the phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. You see, death was reigning over mankind because of sin, and it's still reigning over mankind today because of sin. As the death bell repeatedly tolls throughout Genesis chapter 5, we come to realize that God was proving Satan to be a liar. What did he say to Eve? He was calling God a liar when he said to Eve, Ah, ye shall surely not die. Well, the Holy Spirit is proving Satan to be the liar and God to have been the one to tell the truth when he inspired Moses to repeatedly write for us, and he died, and he died, and he died, pressing home the fact to us that the wages of sin is death. Now, another thing we might want to notice about chapter 5 is that we are also repeatedly told that each of the mentioned patriarchs and prophets lived. I like this part. It says, look at verse 3, and Adam lived. Look at verse 7, and Seth lived, and Enos lived. In fact, in most cases in this chapter, we will notice the word lived twice about each one of those men. And I think that's very interesting. For example, in verse 3, we read, and Adam lived in 130 years when Seth was born. And then in verse 5, notice again it says about Adam, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. It's interesting to me that it mentions the fact that they died only once, but it mentions the fact that they lived twice. You see, if you are born twice, if you, you know, are born physically once and then spiritually the second time, you only die once. And here we have an illustration of that. Now, on the other hand, you know what? Remember back, I think this was one of your homework questions, wasn't it? Remember back in chapter 4, we, didn't, we don't find, you can go through that whole chapter and you don't find any time where it mentions that they lived, any of those men. I mean, we know we, they did, but it, the scripture, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Moses to say, and so and so lived. And nowhere is it mentioned that they died. And neither is there any mention of any of those Canaanites' ages. You know, age when they gave birth to their next son or age when they died. No lived, no died, no ages. Why is that? Well, they had only lived for themselves. And therefore, you see, heaven saw no purpose in recording their ages or their deaths or even in mentioning the fact that they lived because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They had never been born again. So their lives were meaningless and, and empty, and, so their, and their deaths were an eternal shame to God. On the other hand, God cared about every little aspect of those who called on him for his salvation. He was involved in their lives. Is he involved in your life if you know him? Yes, he is. He knows every hair on your head. If he knows when a sparrow falls, he knows every detail about your life. Did he know how old, what year you were born? Did he know the day you were born, the moment you were born? Did he, does he know the moment, the day you gave birth to your first child, etc., etc.? Yes, he does. He records those things in his books. 
And you'll see that in your homework. He records, we see he recorded that. He cared about their age when they gave birth to their sons. He cared about the ages that they were when he called them into his presence. Because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, as we turn to consider the ten names given to us here in this chapter, we're going to look first of all at the six names found in verses 1 to 20 to whom we will refer as the antediluvian patriarchs. And then we're going to look at verses 21 to 32, the last four names who we're calling the antediluvian prophets. Now, don't get me wrong. They're really all patriarchs of our faith, and they really all were in some aspect also prophets. But, but basically the first six or more Patriarchs and the last four were more prophets. Okay, so let's look at the antediluvian patriarchs in verses 1 to 20. <clears throat> this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived in 105 years and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahaliel. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahaliel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahaliel lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared. And Mahaliel lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahaliel were 890 and 5 years, and he died. And Jared lived 160 and 2 years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and 2 years, and he died. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I'm out of breath. <clears throat> In verses 1 to 3, which we've already discussed, <clears throat> we read that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. And that he lived, after the birth of Seth, he lived another 800 years. So you can imagine, of course, he, he bore many other sons and daughters. It tells us that. And then he finally died at the ripe old age of 930. When Adam died, okay, now think about this. When Adam died, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, and Enoch were all alive. He saw all of them. They all knew him. They could all talk to Adam. As a matter of fact, even Lamech, the father of Noah, was still alive. Lamech was 56 years old when Adam died. Amazing. I mean, you know, when you live that long, you see a lot of your descendants. It took a, lo a long time for the death sentence to catch up with the most perfectly created human being that this world has ever seen. Most perfectly created. You notice I said that. Jesus Christ was not created. 
But eventually to the dust, Adam's body did return and it yet remains there until the day of resurrection. Although Adam lived long enough to see the way of Cain, um, all right, I won't, well, I don't want you copying that too much because that's part of your homework. Da, 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 da. I should cover that up. <laughs> we don't want it to, now you're all getting out pens, don't do that. <laughs> He, he lived long enough to see the way of Cain multiply itself, you know, over and over and over again as his descendants through his firstborn son grew increasingly wicked and immoral and proud. The good news is that he also lived long enough to experience the Lord's preservation of a righteous seed through which that promised Messiah would come. You see, Adam lived long enough to get the picture that God was always going to continue to have his remnant, his witnesses on earth, even in the midst of a crooked and a perverse uh, generation of people. Adam lived also to experience the revival of the days of his grandson, Enos. And don't you know that this must have just given his heart great joy to see that revival in the midst of all the guilt and sorrow that that man must have experienced for having been the cause for all the sin that entered into the world in the first place. I mean, you know, if you ever think you have a burden of guilt, can you imagine what Adam felt like? Now, we've already mentioned that Seth's name means appointed one or set in the place of or substitute. And I said, too, that Enos, who was born when Seth was 105 years old, His name means frail, weak man or mortal. And so I'm going to just move on now to give you the meaning of the next three men who carried on the godly seed of the woman. Canaan, um, and you can see in 1 Chronicles 1-2 that there's a different spelling for his name as well. It can be K-E-N-A-N, and I do like that. Um, writing better because this this version looks too much like the name Cain, so I like the K E N A N. Anyways, I'm I'm prejudiced about K's, aren't I? Yes, my children are Chris with a K, Casey with a K, and Constantina with a K, and I'm Catherine with a K, and my maiden name was with a K, and I can't get Frank to change Caldwell to a K. <laughs> but Canaan, who was the son of Enos. Um, was was born to Enos when Enos was 90 years old. I think I have that up there. Yeah, I do. And uh, he was given a name, which means their smith, okay? Their smith. A little bit dubious about that, but that's the best translation they can come up with. And all I could think of with that was that it may be an indication that the Sethites also contributed to the cultural and technological progress of their world. This man must have been a smith of some sort, but not at the expense of their love and their worship of God, as was true with the Canaanites. When Canaan was 70, he begat, begat Mahaliel. And of course, we're told that each of the patriarchs, just like Adam and Eve, also had other sons and daughters. Did you notice how many times that's mentioned? That the, you know, the Lord wanted us to know they also had other sons and daughters besides just the sons who are mentioned by name who were the sons that would carry on the Messianic line. Now, the name Mahaliel, as you see up there, means God be praised. Wonderful name, isn't it? How come we don't name our kids Mahaliel? <laughs> our little sons, I know. 
so we see even in a day when the majority of the world was busy praising themselves, you know, for their own accomplishments and their own successes, as we saw with Jubal, Jabal, and Tubal Cain, yet there was a man who called his own son, God be praised. When Mahaliel was 65 years old, he was young in comparison, God gave him and his wife the next descendant in the godly line, and he, um, his name was Jared. Now, I do hear that name. We have a couple Jareds in our church. Jared means descent. Descent. The line from godly Seth was, you see, continuing to descend down, down to the time when the Savior would be born. Now, one thing that I want to add at this point is that many liberals, as you probably know, and many Bible scoffers have criticized, they've had a great time criticizing and making fun of the long ages of these patriarchs. And they have attempted, therefore, to reinterpret their ages by making the years, turning the years into months. So in other words, they would say Adam did not die when he was 930 years old. He died when he was 930 months old. And you see, that would make him 77 and a half years old, which is an age they, you know, with their, their uniformitarian mindsets, they can cope with that. The problem that these men would have if they would carry through on their little logic is not only that do they have to reinterpret the Hebrew word for years, but they're going to have a real problem when they get to Mahaliel and Enoch, who were 65 years old when they gave birth to their sons, because that would make them a little bit over five when they gave birth to their sons. Now, when it comes to men such as Enos and Canaan and Mahaliel and Jared, about whom a whole lot is not known, and about whom probably few of us even knew before we looked at this chapter, we might be tempted to categorize these men as relatively unimportant. Yet this is not true at all. Not only are their names mentioned in three places in the eternal word of God. I mean, wouldn't you be excited if your name was in God's word even once? Their names are in here three times. Not only that, but they were very, very godly men in an extremely wicked world. When we come back after our break next week, you'll see how wicked the world had really gotten. So they are, again, as I said, a great example for us and a great testimony to us. But they were also very significant in that, in that they were absolutely mandatory links in the messianic chain, which went from Adam and Seth all the way to the birth of our Lord. You'll find their names again in Luke chapter 3 in the messianic line of our Lord. So without these men whose names are, we're relatively unfamiliar with, without them, Christ would not have been born. Are they important men? You better believe it. So we learn, you see, that God sees things much more differently than we do. And one day in heaven, he is going to honor many undistinguished people, many people we have never heard of but people who have been very faithful to his plans and his purposes by doing their seemingly small part. You know, don't ever think that you're not important, that you're not out there winning the whole world. 
to the Lord Jesus Christ and that you're just really a, a sort of a nobody. Don't ever think that because you don't know in whose chain to salvation you are a link. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it'll be through one of your children. Maybe it'll be through somebody in a Sunday school class you taught one day. You don't know until you get to heaven, people will come to you and say, you know, if it wasn't for you, I would never have known the Lord. If you hadn't laid that track on October 3rd, 2000, in that bathroom in McDonald's, I never would have picked it up and gotten saved. I mean, we don't know. These men probably didn't think they were anybody important. But without them, Christ would never have been born. So just remember that. When God's books are open, we're going to hear about a lot of people we just never knew about and how important they were in God's overall program. Well, let's turn to the last four men. We're going to spend more time with them um, because we do know a little bit more information about them than we do with the first six, well, other than Adam. And so these are called the antediluvian um, prophets. I just noticed a mistake. I bet you that mistake is in your notes, too. <laughs> oh, well, you'll notice when you get there. Let's look at them in verses 21 to 32, all right? And Enoch, remember we said that Jared gave birth to Enoch, so look at verse 21. And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. So again, if they went by months instead of years, he would have been about 5 years old when he gave birth to Methuselah, or his wife did. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I'm going to stop and just talk about Enoch for a while. Uh, Enoch, the son of Jared, was, as, as we just read, 65 years old when he gave uh, birth to the next son who would carry on the godly line, a son who Enoch named, what? You all have heard of him, Methuselah. Enoch's name, now remember, this is not the Enoch, the son of Cain, who built the first city. Uh, but when we talked about that Enoch, we discussed the fact that his name means, in Hebrew, dedicated, or beginner, or initiated. Um, it appears that Enoch's walk with God began with the birth of his son because the scripture very clearly tells us in verse 22, and Enoch walked with God when? After he begat Methuselah. In only four verses that I just read there, it tells us that Enoch walked with God twice. He's only one of two men in all the scripture that we're told walked with God. I wonder who the other one was. Anybody know? Raise your hand. Does anybody know who the other man was that it says in the scripture that he walked with God? Yes. Who? You just changed your mind. I thought I heard John. Joshua, no. Here. Noah, right. If you just look over in the next column, you'll probably read it. I think it's in 6-9. Very good. Noah walked with God. Perhaps, as is true with many of us, it was at the time of the birth of his son that Enoch realized, you know, that he needed to get himself right with God so that he could raise godly children, offspring. God often uses the births of children to bring people, parents, to himself, doesn't he? 
I know he did in our lives. I mean, I had been saved, but my husband hadn't. It was a season, it was a critical season in our lives after we gave birth to children. Um, You know, that I started to realize that I had this great responsibility. You know, I'd I'd gone to university, gotten my degree, but they never gave me a class on how to raise children. And I couldn't believe, I'll never forget that feeling, I could not believe that they were going to let me leave the hospital with that little guy. You really going to trust me with this? <laughs> it just, it just, you know, blew me away that they'd let me go home and raise him, and I didn't have a clue what to do. <laughs> so it's a critical lot, a time in our lives. It's one of those seasons in somebody's life, you know, when they realize the fantastic responsibility of raising a child, especially in such a godless world. And so this is a time often when we can witness to unsaved parents, you know, because they're beginning to think about, I don't want my child to go through all the horrible things that I encountered. I need to have an answer for this child. I want the best for this child. So remember that and invite young mothers and their husbands to church, to Christ-honoring church and to a Bible study that uplifts the Lord, where they can hear the and witness to them, of course, on your own, one-on-one, because that's a season in their life when you very well may be able to reach them. So perhaps Enoch was one of those who called upon the name of the Lord when he realized the responsibility which fell on him for raising godly children, a godly son, in a godless world. Or perhaps something else happened at the time of Methuselah's birth. God may have, that's a telephone, God may have realized something very special or revealed something very special to Enoch at the time that his son was born. Something so special that he not only used that information to name his son, to give him the name that he gave him, but something which also totally revolutionized his life. Because it was at the time of the birth of his son that Enoch began his walk with God, and he also then became a very vibrant and fervent prophet who preached zealously against the godlessness of his day. In fact, you know, we even know what it is that Enoch preached. Would you like to turn over to the, the, the little epistle that comes right before Revelation? So you go to the second to last book in your Bible, the epistle of Jude, half-brother of Jesus, and look, since there's only one chapter, you only say the verses, so look at verses 14 and 15. We find that we know exactly what Enoch prophesied, what he preached in his day. And it's amazing that as we listen to these words, we not only find words which sound like he was talking directly to Lamech. Remember wicked Lamech, the Canaanitic Lamech? The one who had those three sons, the Lamech who boast, he was a bigamist and he boasted about um, how he could kill that man, take revenge even more than God had on Cain. Remember that, Lamech? It sounds like Enoch is talking directly to him. And remember, they're contemporaries because they were both seventh generations from Adam. Lamech was seventh generation on Cain's side, and Enoch is the seventh generation on Seth's side. But not only do we hear that it sounds like he's talking directly to men like Lamech, but we also hear something very amazing. He is predicting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What? 
And this, the seventh generation from Adam, and they're already talking about the second coming of Christ? Yes. We know this from what Jude tells us Enoch said. Look at it. It says in 14 and 15, if you're in the little book of Jude, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That is not a prophecy about the Lord's first coming, because he didn't come with ten thousands of his saints at his first coming, did he? This is a picture of when the Lord returns in Revelation chapter 19. This is the second coming. And this is Enoch speaking. He says, So the Lord come with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. Did the Lord come the first time to execute judgment upon all the ungodly? No. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he, came to exec- he will come to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That last part sounds like Lamech's boast there. And by the way, that's all one sentence, one run-on sentence there. So don't get on me when my sentence, I know sometimes my sentences go on and on and on, (laughs) but that's biblical. (laughs) All right, you want to go back to um, Genesis chapter 5. So it's amazing. This is clearly, what Enoch was prophesying there was clearly an an amplification of Genesis 3.15. You know, the promise that the seed of the woman would ultimately uh, defeat Satan. And all the ungodly seed. And that's exactly what Enoch predicted. That the Lord would come with ten thousands of his saints. We'll be there. I hope you'll be there if you're born again. We'll return with him when he finally does totally uh, defeat all of his um, enemies. Including Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, etc. Now, although the prophetic words of Enoch will have their primary fulfillment, as we just said, in the literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet his words had another preliminary fulfillment in the flood. Because of the name that Enoch gave to his son, many Bible scholars believe that God, at the time of the birth of his son, God told Enoch about the coming judgment which would come upon the whole world with the flood. And that's, I mean, if you got information like that from God, wouldn't it revolutionize your life? And you'd start to walk closely with him and start to boldly preach to the ungodly that they needed to get right because judgment was coming. What did he name his son? Methuselah, which in the Hebrew means when he dies, it will be sent or after he is dead it will come and that fact alone is great evidence that at the time of the birth of his son Enoch learned from God about the coming judgment of the great flood it was in fact the very year that Methuselah died that the flood came the very year and perhaps then it's very significant Did you ever wonder why that man lived so long? He's the man who lived the longest of anybody ever, 969 years. Maybe it was because this was God testifying 
of the fact that he is a long-suffering God. Doesn't it tell us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe that that is why he allowed Methuselah to live longer than any other man. He was giving men the most time to repent because the year that Methuselah died, the judgment came. So the testimony of Enoch man word, you know, to his fellow man, was that he prophesied fervently and boldly, oops, I'm a little late on that one, aren't I, right in the faces of the ungodly of his day. He spoke to them of the coming judgment, which would judge all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds that they did in an ungodly way because they were ungodly sinners. He said the word ungodly four times in Jude. And you have to admit that that kind of preaching right in the face of a man like Lamech would be pretty bold because what did Lamech possess because of his son Tubal-Cain? Weapons. So Enoch, I mean, this man Enoch, whoo, he had to have been very bold and very dedicated. What did his name mean? Dedicated and very godly. In addition to learning of Enoch's denunciation of the ungodliness of the men of his day, we also read of his testimony Godward. Now, if you want to flip over to the faith chapter, the Hall of Faith chapter, which is Hebrews chapter 11, we find that Enoch is now the second man behind Abel to be recorded in this Hall of Faith chapter. It tells us in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. Actually, I should go there so I can read it to you. Hebrews 11. My Bible is falling apart and my pages are slipping out. All right, let's read that. Hebrews 11:5 and 6. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was found and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony. What's his Godward testimony? That he pleased God. And then it goes on to tell us, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them, rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So his testimony, Godward, is that he pleased God. Now here's another question to throw out at you. There is only one other person in the scripture of whom it is said that he pleased God. Who is that? Raise your hand. Only one other person in the scripture. Anita? Jesus. Right. Only, I mean, that's pretty good to be on a level with Jesus. It, of course, the, the Father said from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, Enoch pleased God so much that you notice the solemn little phrase that we kept reading over and over? And he died, and he died, and he died. That little phrase is not used of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. And here again, another trivia question. He is one of only two men in the scripture who did not die physically. And who was the other one? Elijah, very good. Elijah, you all knew that one. It's interesting to notice that Enoch prophesied approximately 
halfway between the time of Adam and Abraham. Okay? Halfway between, I don't know if I'm doing this right from where you are, but Adam and Abraham, halfway was Enoch. Okay? And then halfway between Abraham and Christ, in the middle of those two, was Elijah. The two men that went to heaven without dying. They were what we call translated. They were raptured into heaven without dying. The translation of Enoch to heaven without dying is believed by many, including myself, to be a picture in prophetic type of the rapture of the church, which will likewise occur at a time when wickedness and apostasy will have climaxed. The rapture of the church, just like the translation of Enoch, will, I believe, come before the judgment. It will come before the tribulation period, just as Enoch was translated to heaven before the flood came. He's a picture of the church. Do we, as members of the church, not walk with God? If you are truly born again, you walk with God because he's inside of you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. So everywhere you go, you are walking with God. And because we are the beloved bride of Christ, he is pleased with his church. So he's a picture of us. And I believe that's one more reason for a pre-tribulation rapture. Many believe because they did not physically die that it will be Enoch... And Elijah, who will be the two mighty witnesses of the tribulation period. Now, many believe that, not all do, um, who will be murdered. You know, they'll be murdered by the Antichrist before they've completed, or actually when they've completed their ministry for God, in the very most godless of all ages, even more godless than right before the flood. And that will be during the time of the Great Tribulation. If you've read those Left Behind books, I'm just curious, how many of you have read those Tim LaHaye? Oh, I knew it. <laughs> he thinks, who does he think the two witnesses are? Right, Moses and Elijah, because he calls them Moshe and Eli, right? And there's a lot of thought about that, too. Um, but read the notes, because I tell you, so I found something interesting about maybe the fact that it was Enoch and Elijah. I don't really know. Maybe it's two that we've never heard of yet, for all I know. But it's interesting to speculate. So God translated Enoch because he walked so closely with God. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Matthew Henry in his commentary said this. He said he did not live like the rest, so he did not die like the rest. That's good. Enoch presents for us the fact that it is possible to live a godly life with God and for God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Enoch is not only an example, but he is to serve as a great encouragement to us in that God has proved both his power and his promise to give eternal life. That which occurred with Enoch is what also may very well occur with us. We may be that generation which sees the rapture of the church. You know, we may very well be among those blessed people who, like Enoch, were translated, uh, will be translated to heaven without physically dying. 
Regardless of how dark the day in which we live is or how godless the news might be, we have the promise of God that his son is one day returning to take us to be with him. Isn't that what he said in in John 14? You know, that he was coming back to take us to be where he is. And he's preparing a place for us even. And so as with Enoch, when he learned that at the time of the death of his son, judgment would come... We should also be greatly uh, motivated and encouraged to be godly and to witness with great fervor to the lost of our generation. Doesn't it say in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Therefore, my beloved brethren, but I always like to say my beloved sisteren, (laughs) be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of Christ, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So keep on pressing on. Well, let's look at Methuselah, verses 25 to 27. We learn about him. It says, And Methuselah lived 180 and seven years and begat Lamech. Now, this is a different Lamech. This is a good Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 782 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Methuselah was a prophet of God. I've got him under the prophets. We don't know anything he said, but he's a prophet in the fact that his name and his life witnessed of the patience of God. Because God revealed through his father Enoch that when Methuselah died, the judgment would come. And because of the fact that Methuselah lived longer than any other human being has ever lived, he brought, just through his life and his name, a very powerful message to the world that God is, as we said, long-suffering. Throughout the almost 1,000 years of his life, we know that things went from bad to worse to evil to wicked to satanic. And yet God withheld judgment. However, when Methuselah did die, which can be figured to be the 16th, let's see, how am I going to say this? 1,656th year from the creation of Adam. It can be figured from the information we're given in the scripture. And it can also be figured that that was the very year of the flood. So when he did die, the flood did come. All right, moving on for the sake of time, let's look at Lamech. And for this, let's look at verses 28 to 31. And Lamech lived in 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. Lamech, who was the son born to Methuselah when he was 187 years old, was the next appointed servant of God to carry on the Messianic line. And his name means, if you remember over from the bad Lamech, his name means powerful or conqueror or wild man. However, in his case, this good Lamech's case, I don't think really wild man is very appropriate unless he was very wild in his witness for the Lord. Um, now, surely Lamech's father, and who was Methuselah, and his grandfather, who was Enoch, had explained to him the meaning of his father's name. 
Okay, and so therefore, surely Lamech, who became the father of Noah, knew that time was growing shorter and shorter and shorter with each passing year of his of his um, father's life. Did I get that right? Yeah, his father's life is Methuselah. So with each passing year, that's wrong in your notes too. Change that. It's not his grandfather, it's his father. Now, I, I speculate on this because of the name which Lamech gave to his son. What was the name he gave to his son? Noah. And uh, Noah means rest, right. Along with the name for his son, then Lamech gave this explanation. He said, this same, that's speaking of Noah, shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. The great concern of Lamech here was that the world would find rest and comfort. He must have been, after 282 years of toiling and sweating and struggling to exist in a very cursed world amidst an increasingly godly people, he must have been very weary by the time that Noah was born. Life had become very difficult, especially for a righteous man living amidst so many who had turned totally to satisfying the lust of their flesh, the lust of their eyes, the pride of life. And so Lamech was a prophet in that he named his son Noah because by doing this he was predicting that through his son the world would find rest and comfort that it so desperately needed. And it was, of course, through Noah that the godly line continued and that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would ultimately come. I mean, just think if it hadn't been for Noah. Everybody would have perished, right? Um, And, of course, through him, the Messiah eventually came, and then another very weary and heavily laden people would hear him, the Messiah, say, Come unto me, all ye that weary are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, or all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you Noah. <laughs> it's really what he was saying, because his name means rest. I will give you rest. Did they find rest in Noah, in the ark of safety that took him through the judgment? Didn't he say, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Um, Also, of course, at the time of the Lord's second coming, he will bring with him the earthly kingdom of rest, the millennial kingdom, when the curse will be reversed and there will finally be rest for this world. Now, it's interesting, I think, that Lamech lived to be 777 years of age. You see that in verse 31? He was 777, and I saw that number, and I, you know, my eyes just jumped out. I said, oh, there's got to be some significance in that. Seven is the number for completion. And Lamech is the very last man to be mentioned who lived in the antediluvian age. He's the only one, the last one to live, whose name is mentioned, um, who did not go on into the post-flood world. Noah, of course, we have mentioned, but he went on into the new world. So Lamech is the end of the antediluvian. You know, he's, he's the completion, 777. But then something dawned on me, even this morning, that I did not see, and it's not in your notes, because I just saw it. But what is his name? Lamech. Do you remember the other Lamech? 
What did he boast about? This just dawned on me. I, I don't know what the significance is, but there's got to be some. The bad Lamech, who's also the last man to be mentioned, you know, in Cain's line, it says in verse 24 of chapter 4, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. So both Lamechs are connected with the sevens. I, I don't know what that means because I haven't had enough time to think about it, but it's interesting. I love, I love things like that. Well, Noah, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Noah, so I'm not really going to get into discussing him right now, except let's just read verse 32. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He was 500 years old <clears throat> when he gave birth to his next son, who would carry on the, um, the godly line. I think that's correct. <clears throat> he was five. No, that's not right. He was 500 years old when he gave birth to his first son. These sons are not given here. This is what's confusing. They're not giving, given in the birth order because uh, Japheth was his oldest son. So he was 500 years old when he gave birth to Japheth. And um, Shem, however, was the son, the godly son. Well, they were all godly or they wouldn't have been saved in the ark. But he was the son through whom the Messiah would come, Shem. All right. So their birth order should be um, Japheth and then Ham, uh, Shem and then Ham, I think. I can't remember exactly, but that's not right. But he was, of course, a prophet, and he is called a, a preacher of righteousness by the Apostle Peter. And we know that, of course, for 120 years while he was building the ark, he um, prophesied to the people that they needed to get themselves right with God and come into his ark and all that sort of thing. So he was definitely a prophet. So this then is, and we're going to talk a lot about him in the weeks to come. <clears throat> I think that it's interesting that he, he's the only one in this list who has his three sons listed and mentioned. And that is because they become the fathers of the three uh, races that we'll be discussing. And again, that's interesting because Lamech had his three sons listed, and they, remember, became the fathers of all the worldly accomplishments and advancements. Here we have the three sons who will be the fathers of the three basic races. So this is the line of the Sethites, all right? It's a wonderful line of very godly men who lived boldly for God in the midst of a very godless society. And they are proof to us that God does not leave himself without a remnant of his witnesses. All right, and now that your Bibles are all closed, I want you to just listen very carefully to something. I've told you that this study is called Jesus in Genesis and that Jesus is everywhere. Is, could he be in the genealogies? Well, we've already seen that he's in the genealogies, haven't we? I mean, Enoch prophesied even about his second coming. But as you look at the names of the meanings of these ten men in the godly messianic line of Jesus Christ, you will find names which describe him. He was the second Adam, wasn't he? The perfect man. He was our substitute. He was our divinely appointed one, which you see in the name Seth. Although he was God, he willingly took upon himself the weak frailty of human flesh and mortality. 
which we see in the name Enos. He became a common worker, a carpenter, which we see in the name Canaan, Smith. It was through the life of Christ that God is praised, right? Which we see in the name Mahaliel. Christ is the one who descended from heaven to come to earth in order to dedicate his life to us, which we see in the names Jared and Enoch. He was the one who began the first fruits of the resurrection, which we also see in the name Enoch. When he died, it will come. When Christ died, judgment came upon Israel. And it will also come upon all those who do not put their faith in his death on their behalf. So we see him in the name Methuselah. Christ is the ultimate conqueror and powerful one, as we see in the name Lamech. And he alone, he alone can offer men rest, which we see in the name Noah. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Father, your word is so perfect. It is so perfect. I just am so burdened for people who don't know how perfect it is. I just wish all the world knew that truly you are the author of this fantastic, mighty book, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If people only knew that this is the only book you ever wrote, they would just pour themselves over it and learn all they could about you. Unless, of course, they're willfully rebellious, as so many are. But, Father, I pray with all my heart that we might be Enoch's and Methuselah's and Lamech's and Noah's and Jared's and Mahaliel's in this godly world, that we ungodly world that we live in, that we might just totally dedicate ourselves to proclaiming the truth that only Jesus Christ saves and that we might see revival before you return. I pray, Father, that men and women and boys and girls would just call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. May we see that revival before we go home to be with you. Father, I love you, and I love your women who hunger so much for your word and thirst for your righteousness. Bless them abundantly. And if there's one who is not saved, may she today call on your name and truly become a member of your kingdom forever in eternity. And we will praise you and give you all the glory that you alone deserve. For we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.